Tonight's New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38 and 46 through 56. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth and her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Happy Advent. My name is Glenn. I serve as one of the pastors here at Grace Downtown. And uh, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent in the Christian calendar. And so we complete our rotation of network pastors. Uh, you've heard from uh, Pastor Russ Whitfield. Uh, from Pastor Duquan, and you're about ready to hear from Dr. Irwin Entz. And doc, uh, Dr. Entz, Irwin, uh, is a friend to this congregation. He's a pastor in this network, praise God. And uh, he is the director of our Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission, which is uh, a network ministry that we own and delight in. Uh, we're so grateful you being here and Kim is here as well as wife welcome Kim and uh, brother will you come on up and I'd love to pray for you I'm gonna, I'll, I'm gonna step down you step up father so grateful for Irwin thank you for um, everything he is just the unique man of God he is um, his spirit his vision God I thank you for his faith and I pray now he would share out of the joy of his own salvation. In Christ's name, amen. 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 Thank you. 
Well, good evening, Grace Downtown. It is good uh, to be back with you all tonight for my marathon Sunday. <laughs> Last year when we did this, I was sick. Bless the Lord, that's not the case today. You have heard a sermon passage from the Gospel of Luke read into your hearing, and I want to speak to you on this subject this evening, Madonna and the Margins. Madonna and the Margins, and of course you will realize that by Madonna I am not referring to the pop singer, but I am referring to the woman that we have read about in our passage, Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to start tonight by just kind of telling you about a, um, an unexpected encounter that I had about two months ago, uh, a conversation that I had. I was flying from Reagan National to uh, Orlando, Florida to teach a seminary course down there. And uh, I had uh, some extra frequent flyer miles, and so I decided to spend them and upgrade my seat to first class. Yeah, amen. A little bit of a flight in luxury. Um, and now some people, when they fly, are, are, are very conversational. They like to say hi to the person in the seat next to them or in the row that, that they're in, uh, but, but that's not me. Uh, uh, far from it, as a matter of fact, I have my earphones on my ears even as I'm making my way down the jetway into the plane. There might not be anything playing, but they're on my ears. And I'm not talking about little like AirPods and earbuds. I'm talking about the things that cover your ears. I'm communicating a very clear message. Leave me be. And I thought, hey, first class is going to be great. Nobody talks to anybody in first class, right? Well, I sit down and the uh, gentleman in the seat next to me, he, uh, he reaches over, he reaches his hand out and introduces himself, says, hi, I'm John. Okay, shake his hand and say, I'm, I'm Irwin. Again, relatively innocent, innocuous, right? No, no need to go any further. And then he says, well, what do you do, Irwin? And internally, I'm like, I'm a pastor. And he says, oh, well, I'm a minister too. Turns out, turns out that John was just on his way back from uh, a meeting of, a roundtable meeting with other evangelical leaders at the White House with President Trump. And so my entire flight from D.C. to Orlando was, was a much of a monologue of him uh, extolling for me the excellencies and the virtues of our president and his policies. Now, I mean, we talked about everything, everything from Ukraine to uh, immigration to all of it. Even he even had for me a prophetic word that just like 
in Isaiah chapter 45, the Persian king Cyrus is called the Lord's anointed. It's no coincidence that Donald Trump is the 45th president of the United States. Now, you know, I, right, I'm all for li religious liberty. I attempted to point out a couple of things. I said, you know, I'm actually not afraid. I'm not fearful for the church in America based on whoever is president or who's in that office because Jesus is the one who promised that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And, and, and in fact, I said, you know, right, history uh, is replete with examples of how the church actually does grow and flourish even when it's under difficult times. He said, well, I'm not so sure about that. Here's the thing. The message in Scripture that God rhythmically beats throughout its pages from beginning to the end is that the human condition is one of weakness and vulnerability, that true strength for people does not come from our mental or our physical fortitude. No, God is the source of all true strength, and we experience it through our absolute and utter dependence upon him. The experience of strength comes through our proximity to God. And what stood out most of all to me in my airplane conversation with John was his utter sense of satisfaction in being in close proximity to the power of the presidency. He said, we've never had access to the president and the White House the way we, we do now. And, and that proximity brought with it for, for him a sense of confidence that things would go well for the church legislatively and judicially. And in the course of our conversation, he was able to be dismissive of any negative things you might say about the president's uh, failings. Let me make this point. I don't really care this evening what your political persuasion is. You're missing it if you think that's the point that I'm making because whether we are on the left or whether we are on the right politically, we are human. And to be human is to prefer to be situated in proximity to power as if the good life and the blessings and what we need are found in being in positions of worldly strength and not being in positions that are weak and vulnerable. And one of the themes of the passage tonight that runs through this passage is the power of God. The power of God is on display, but it is the power of God on display at the margins where Mary is. I want to share these three things with you from this passage. I want to talk about grace at the margins. Grace at the margins. Glory at the margins and gratitude from the margins. Grace at the margins, glory at the margins, and gratitude at the margins. Like, wh why is this story in Luke's gospel even here? Why do we get to talk about Madonna at the mar and the margins uh, tonight? 
The gospel writers, they do not give us every detail about all the facets of of Jesus' life and story. In fact, only Matthew and Luke tell us uh, of Jesus' birth. Mark and John, they leave that story out uh, completely of their accounts. And here's my point. Luke tells us at the beginning of his book his reason for every detail that he is including. He says in the beginning of chapter 1 in verses 3 and 4 when he writes, to Theophilus, he says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you that you may have certainty, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And I want us to understand that this is here, this story is here so that you and I tonight can have certainty about the way that the grace of God reached down and continues to reach down into the margins with saving power to lift high the lowly. And this is indeed the first point, grace at the margins. Luke tells us about this young teenage virgin girl named Mary who lived in a nowhere city named Nazareth. Nazareth was the opposite of of Washington, D.C. Nobody was looking to move into Nazareth. It's about as far from the center of power and influence and industry as you can get. As a matter of fact, the common attitude about Nazareth is given by a man named Nathaniel in the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 46, where Philip finds Nathaniel and he says to Nathaniel, we have found the one that Moses and the law and the prophets wrote about, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, and Nathanael says to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's what people thought about Nazareth, and that's where Mary lived, a young woman at the margins in a city at the margins of society. As Philip Riken writes in his commentary on this passage, it is doubtful that Gabriel could have found a more unlikely person to greet anywhere in Israel. Mary was among the lowliest of the low. She was a poor, uneducated peasant girl living in a small country town far from the city center of power. Mary was also a female in a culture that discounted women. From a merely human perspective, she was totally insignificant. And yet, It is to her that God sends the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel says to her in verse 28, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And Mary is shaken to her core. She is deeply troubled and and distressed. She is afraid and she is trying to figure out what's happening here. What is meant by this greeting? And then Gabriel says to her in verse number 30, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. 
The verb in verse 28 and the noun in verse number 30 that is translated as favor is the same word for grace. Oh, favored one is in the passive voice. To be a favored one is to be a recipient of the grace of God. To have found favor with God is to be a recipient of God's grace. The grace of God has found her at the margins and the deal is it's not as though that there's some special piety or some special goodness or some special holiness of being at the margins uh, because that would make it as if she was deserving of grace and that's never the case. Grace from God is always undeserved and unmerited. In a recent article written by Wheaton College Professor Amy Peeler, she writes this, her article is titled, Protestants Need to Talk More About Mary. And she writes this, the fact that God became incarnate through a woman shapes all of Christian theology. And I would modify it a bit to say this, that the fact that God became incarnate through this woman shapes all of Christian theology. Because here's the deal, first, God always, always sees those who are at the margins. He always sees, particularly with eyes of compassion, those who are at the margin, and his seeing is always connected to his acting. His seeing is always connected to his doing. We'll get to this in a minute, but this is what Mary says in her song of praise down in verse number 48. She says, he has looked upon the humble, the lowest state of his servant. And then he, she knows that that looking has led to his doing. She says in verse 49, the Almighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. This presses us. It presses us because unless you find yourself at the margins, lacking resources, un unable to pay bills, unable to afford decent health care, unable to live securely in your home, desperately seeking a, a better life somewhere else, migrating to another place, unless you find yourself physically or mentally or emotionally at the margins, you and I are prone to not really see the margins at all. And God selecting Mary and bestowing his grace upon her reminds us that he always sees at the margins. And if we are to be his people, it reminds us that we are called to see at the margins too. Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative says this in his book, Just Mercy. He he says that his work with incarcerated people on death row uh, has taught him something. Uh, almost all of the individuals that he works with, these incarcerated folks who are facing uh, execution, has, has taught him something. He says they are almost all of them people who come from impoverished and marginalized uh, contexts. And he says he's learned that the opposite of poverty is not wealth. He said he's learned that the opposite of poverty is justice. 
What people on the margins are regularly excluded from is the experience of justice in this life. And if we're not on the margins, we're often blind to it. But God is not. Secondly is this, our next point, God's glory at the margins. We get two uh, unexpected and incredible declarations from the angel Gabriel. Not only is, is God's grace showing up at the margins, his glory is coming to and through the margins. Do not fear, Mary, Gabriel says, because you have found favor with God. And then he says in verses 31 to 33, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end hundreds of years prior to this incident the prophet Isaiah said that a child would be born unto us a child would be born a son would be given upon whose shoulders the, the governments would rest he will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace there would be no end to the expansion of his kingdom on the throne of david he would establish and uphold his rule with justice and righteousness forever and gabriel says to mary this is the son that is coming into the world through you the glory of God in Jesus the king was not coming into the world through the queen in the palace he was coming into the world through this precious young woman Mary of no social consequence living at the margins but why why not through the palace why not in the lofty heights of society and culture why down at the margins? I will tell you why. It's because that's where we all live. Can I tell you something? It does not matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how good your health is. It doesn't matter how physically strong or how capable you are. It doesn't matter what your level of education is. God knew and God knows that the human condition is not only one that is weak and vulnerable. It is one that is thoroughly beset, that is permeated through and through with rebellion and sin against God. And so with respect to God, the human condition is one of life at the margins. With no hope of change unless God did something about it himself. Phil Riken again says to rescue us from our sins and lift us to glory Jesus first had to enter into the misery of our fallen condition. God's grace is for the lowliest of the low. God's grace is for the lowliest of the low. And the declaration of the gospel is that that describes us. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, that describes us. Remember what Jesus says, you recall, 
what he says when he is asked why he eats and drinks with tax collectors and with sinners during his earthly ministry in Luke chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. Jesus answers that question this way. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. This is why Jesus comes in. This is why the glory of God comes in through the margins. The glory of God veiled in human flesh, born from a poor woman from a nowhere town. It's because we are all desperately in the camp of the sick, needing a physician. Apostle Paul would put it this way to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 when he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And what the apostle is saying is, you're poor without him. He was rich and left his riches to embrace our poverty so that through his embracing of our poverty, we might become rich. The glory of God showing up at the margins. And when Mary hears this message from Gabriel, the fear is gone, but it's replaced by confusion. How is this going to happen? What is happening? What are you talking about? How is this going to happen? She says, I'm a virgin. I have not known a man. She's betrothed to Joseph, and, and everybody knows that and, and knows that their marriage ceremony has not taken place and, and that their union hasn't been consummated. And in his reply, Gabriel points us to the other aspect of God's glory at the margins in this passage, and that is the power and the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit of God. He answers her question, and he says, this is how the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then he says, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. The Holy Spirit makes the invisible God visible to us in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one who fully and permanently united God, the Son, to our humanity. The Holy Spirit put flesh on God for us. The powerful work of the Spirit to bring Jesus into being in Mary's womb declares to us that our flesh matters to God. Let me tell you what I mean. It's an Old Testament illusion. There are plenty of Old Testament illusions in this passage, but one I want to highlight particularly in here in Gabriel's words when he says the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the same verb for overshadow is used in the book of Exodus chapter 40 and verse 35, the very end of the book of Exodus when Moses could not enter into the tent of meeting because 
because the, the glory cloud settled uh, on it and the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle and the Septuagint says that the cloud had overshadowed the tent and the glory of the Lord filled it, the presence of the Lord in the person of the Holy Spirit overshadowing the tabernacle in Exodus to dwell with his people was just a foretaste. And now what we have Gabriel saying to Mary is that the glory of God overshadowing her at the margins to declare that God's presence with humanity was now to be permanent. Jesus' conception was miraculous, but his gestation was normal. He grew in her womb just like any other human being, and he has, uh, he was given a body by the Spirit, and he has it now forever. The Spirit gave Jesus a body like ours to secure our future with God through faith in his name. Someone said recently at an event I was at, said because Jesus still has a body, material and ecclesial, we still have a future. God in the flesh tells us that our flesh matters to God. God is not simply after some disembodied spiritual life for humanity that doesn't have an impact on the physical aspect of our lives and the lives of our neighbors. What do we think about the Holy Spirit? Do we think he's only concerned with the immaterial, ethereal things? No, even the second verse of the Bible tells us that at the creation, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit was, was active in the creation of our physical world. The Spirit gave the Son of God a body. And how does he do it? What is this overshadowing like? It's a mystery, and we're not called to understand it. We're called to believe it and rejoice, to believe, to believe with Mary when Gabriel says to her, for nothing will be impossible with God. It's like what reformer John Calvin said when he wrote about the mystery of the Lord's Supper, the mystery of the bread and the wine, he, he said, I would rather adore the mystery than understand it. I'd rather adore the mystery and understand it. It's, God is calling us to adoration and worship because the Spirit is the giver of life. He's the giver of physical life and therefore matter matters to God. Mary responds, to the beautiful mystery that she will give birth to the Messiah with a song of gratitude and praise from the margins. She goes to visit her older relative Elizabeth and the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy at the presence of the baby in Mary's womb and Elizabeth 
uh, filled with the Holy Spirit pronounces a blessing on Mary and Mary sings a song for the ages that will live forever. She declares in her song that God is perfect. He is perfect in his care. He is perfect in his power. He is perfect in his mercy. He is perfect in his justice and his faithfulness and her gratitude is not just about her personal experience in the song. She's rejoicing over what the Lord is doing for her and for others beyond her in her nation and even in the world. She sings about his perfect care. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant for behold from now on all generations will call me blessed. She sings about her personal experience uh, from, with God and then she says, she says he's looked upon the humble estate of, of his servant. He's seen her at the margins and, and that looking is a loving look but it's not just for her because she then sings in verse 52 he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. This exaltation of those in humble estate, she's saying, is not just for me. This is how God works. What my Savior has done for me, she sings, is a picture of his plan through the Messiah to exalt the humble and the lowly. She sings of the perfection of his power. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And the declaration of his power is about his ability to execute his justice in this world. The mighty one is at work on her behalf, but not only for her, because she says in verse 51, he has shown great strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty, as we said, from their thrones, and he's Fill the hungry with good things and the rich he sent empty away. The power of God, she understands, is so infinite that he can cause her to conceive without having had any relation with a man. And then she remembers how he's shown his mighty arm in the past on behalf of his people as a way of declaring what he's going to do through his Messiah. But Mary rejoices because she sees that God is a just God. Despite the fact that the world is telling a different story, it might seem that those who are arrogant and haughty and proud and rich as a result have no worries, get away with oppression and live pain-free. But God is strong enough to execute his justice in his time and in his way. And she says he's perfect. Lastly, in his mercy and his faithfulness, his mercy, she declares, is for those who fear him from generation to generation Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. The one thing that those who fear the Lord, she says, can know for sure is that God's mercy is for them. Notice that this mercy is from generation to generation for those who fear him. She is praising God for ongoing mercy. It wasn't just that the generations before her could count on God's mercy. The perfection of God's mercy is that it never runs out because he's faithful to keep his promises. He never forgets. 
This is how God is, Mary sings for us. He always exalts the humble and resists the proud. He always lifts the lowly and brings down the lofty. He does this by the power of his spirit through the Lord Jesus Christ. He works like this with individuals. He works like this with churches. He works like this with organizations and institutions and nations. Is it any wonder that Jesus in his ministry offers us this invitation in the gospel of Matthew when he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? Because I am lowly and gentle in heart. This is the disposition of my heart, Jesus says, and it's on display for us in the way he comes into the world. Is it any wonder when the Apostle Paul is explaining the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ to the Corinthians, he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29, that God chose what is weak in the, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not, he says, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We close here with another quote from Amy Peeler's article. This is what she writes. She says, like a multifaceted jewel, at times the Magnificat, this is Mary's song, comforts us when we feel downtrodden. At other times, it calls us to champion the oppressed. When conversations about race and poverty are politicized and fraught, the Magnificat is our centering tether. And when we are tempted to become self-righteous in the idea that we are on the right side of history, it challenges us to ask in what ways we are the mighty, the full, and the rich who need to be toppled. Here's a new Nike commercial I saw just the other day featuring LeBron James. And in this commercial, LeBron James is telling about all of these these uh, um, famous athletes who have had who had humble beginnings, who who started from a, a humble position or a humble uh, condition, and and how they rose out of that circumstance and into into positions of 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 of, of stature and and fame. How they have made it out from a low place into a high place, and then the commercial kind of ends beautifully with his with his. Uh, um, with his, uh, him looking at a commercial about his own school, the I Promise School that he started in, uh, in Akron, Ohio. And, and he says this, he says, you know what would be great? You know what would be wonderful? What if there were no more humble beginnings? He's saying, this is the work we're trying to do with our school. We're trying to make a dent in the hope that there will be no more humble beginnings. Let me say this to you. The fact that our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world through this, this, this woman, this young girl who was of no repute, who was poor at the margins, 
tells us that the Lord himself does not despise humble beginnings. And yes, indeed, there will be a day when there'll be no more need for any humble beginnings. Jesus Christ will return to set all things right. But until that day, we see time and time again the message of the gospel that God takes what is low and despised in the world and he sees into that place and he lifts high and brings salvation to those who understand that they are in that condition. You see, what Gabriel's announcement to Mary and Mary's response of praise is about, it's about the coming of King Jesus to establish his kingdom and his reign and his rule. And as one writer puts it, the coming of the kingdom of God brings the ordinary life of mankind into line with the will of God. That is, it brings people and the things that people inhabit, the things that people do in line with the will of God. And so, listen, we are always, always confronted with some questions. And here it is. I'm done for real. Last three things, these three questions. Here's what it confronts us with, always. Where is God calling us to repent of our striving to be in line with the proud? Where is he calling us to examine our hearts and to see how much we are drawn to thinking that the blessing is being lined up close and personal with those who have it well, who are the powerful, who can execute change in this world? Not saying we ignore that, but where is God calling us to repent of our striving after that as the answer? Because the Bible says he resists the proud. Where is he calling us to repent of the ways that in our striving we miss the margins? We miss the margins that he always sees and acts on behalf of. And lastly, how is he calling us as agents of his kingdom to demonstrate our complete dependence on him living by grace for his glory with all gratitude, especially at the margins. Let's pray. Glory to God in the highest. We say that with the angels, Lord. Glory to your name in the highest. We praise you because you are a God who doesn't miss the margins. You see into the low place and you lift high the humble we pray, Lord God, that you would bless us to know that truth in our own lives and to be those who live to press into that in the lives of our neighbors, in the glory and for the glory of your name. Amen.